Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Sophie. I work here in the learning team at the National Theatre, and I'd like to thank you for being here this afternoon. The saying goes that there are two different things in life that we can be certain of, death and taxes. Thankfully, we're not here to talk about tax. <laughs> we have three fantastic speakers lined up this afternoon who are all going to give us a different perspective on dying. We're starting today with Malika Booker. Malika is currently LHRI Fellow at Leeds University, where she's doing a creative research project about Caribbean funerals, wakes and night nights. And she's going to speak to, her, speak to us about her research gathering memories and anecdotes. Please welcome me, please join me in welcoming Malika. Hi, good afternoon. Can you all hear me? Yes. Oh, what a lovely audience. Um, so, my, yes, my name is Malika Booker. I'm, an, I'm a poet, a writer, a theatre maker, um, and a live art practitioner. Um, I've been in Leeds, first of all, as a, a Douglas Castor Cultural Fellow, and um, recently as an LHRI Fellow, continuing some research into funerals, Caribbean funerals. Um, I went to Slovenia a few years ago, and while in Slovenia doing a writing residency, it was, the, um, the, it was November, the Night of the Dead. And um, in Slovenia, people around me in the little village where I was writing visited their, their um, relatives, lit candles on the graves, and it was very festive. And um, the family that I went down with, the, 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 the little girl said, oh, I'm going to talk to my grandmother. And the boy said, I'm going to go off and talk to my grandfather. And, um, and it reminded me, and all of a sudden there was a missing. I was very far from the Caribbean. I started thinking about the things and the rituals I'd grown up with that I had not done, and it started to birth this idea for this project to, and I think it's a, it's a kind of autobiographical project, trying to find out as my family are getting older, and I realize that I'm going to be the generation who will carry on or who will be responsible for the rituals. We just turn up at these things, and all the older members do it, and you realize that actually those older members are going now. Um, so I decided to go ahead to, re to start interviewing Caribbean members in, the, in, um, in Leeds in, about um, wakes and funerals, particularly um, when I first went up, it was really to do with nine nights. I wanted to look at nine nights, which is a wake. Um, so after the person dies for the nine nights, there is a morning where people come around and sing, play dominoes, eat, speak, um, share memories um, about that person. Um, so, but when I got to Leeds, I went to. The, I, would, the, I realized that in Chapeltown, where I was, it was the Nevis and um, the, the community were from St. Kitts and Nevis, and they were like, we don't do nine nights. And so the project went into funerals, because my family are from Grenada, Guyana, and Trinidad, and in, those, in that space they do, and I knew a lot of Jamaican um, members of family, who, friends who also did nine nights. Um, so I started to look at funerals. Um, what I'm going to do, and the thing I realized is that within our culture, there is the grieving, there's the solemn, and there's the celebration and they can happen simultaneously. Um, so one of the things that came out of there, because this talk is so brief, and this subject, I could talk about this for ages, um, I decided to work on it through a poem. At the same time, um, I was doing a project. Um, I'm, I'm one of my creative projects, I was looking at the Bible. What happens if I 
place the ge geography and the language of the Caribbean in the Bible, or in, the, in the biblical landscape, what would happen to the characters there? And so I was thinking in my, you know, in my fellowship that on Monday and Tuesday I'll work on the Bible, and on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday I will work on death and funerals, as you do. Um, However, they, it, they culminated. I was sitting on my desk and I was thinking, wow, you know, when I phone my family at home um, and they come around to, to visit me, um, I, I would, I, I'm, I'm speaking to them and there's a funeral, they talk a lot about the funeral. Not about the person, but who wore what, what dress someone was wearing, if it was a big turnout. And there's such an investment in the funeral. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And I thought, what would happen if Lazarus was being raised up on like the third or fourth day of a 9-9 wake, how would the people feel? And so um, I thought instead of going into a big thing about nine nights, I would just read you this poem because you'll get an idea from it. Is that okay? Yeah? So um, the setup, this is all in nine sections. If you did see people that night, people for so, who come from town, from far like St. David, from near like St. Mark's to this little St. John parish. It had the makings of a good funeral. Pure bus park up by Guave roadside like ants, and their mourners arrived shuffling with the shock. The priest opened up that wake with plenty prayers. Corn soup bubbled in the iron pot. Red beans slowly converged with rice, thyme, and coconut milk. Chairs clustered like fowls in the yard, till his mother fell down under the weight of her dead son. So young, she muttered, so young. Song, grief song is a different story. It's a clap of hands, then a rocking back and forth story. Grief song is a body dancing to a jagged melody story. Grief song is so searing, it's the belly drops to the knees story. Grief song is the way his mother sinks into the arms of rock of ages story. I tell you, grief song is a hard to tell story because grief song is a different story. And there's a tenor when, when Caribbean older members of, the, of, of our family are singing in the church, there's a tenor to their voice when they're singing those hymns that I was trying to capture in that. So I'm going to do the poem, but I'm going to talk through some of them. Um, so the setup is what you call the setup is the putting out of the food and everything like that and the gathering. Um, and that was the song. Inevitably at a funeral, someone will come and say, I dreamt this. And they'll tell you some dream with some symbols and some, someone else will interpret it. And it will all be, you know, and it will all. But I thought with Lazarus, suppose they couldn't interpret the dreams. So I'm playing and, and joking with this. So um, in the Bible, Lazarus had two sisters, Martha and Mary, and one was very diligent and the other one was very rebellious. So I'm playing with that as well. Martha had dreams for so since the night he dead. And, white, and wise woman Clarice could not make head nor tail of fish and hummingbirds over rough river water of edos swelling on the rocky soil, of septic tank full of bleach and blue soap. What does it mean, she muttered. What does it mean? And inevitably, um, even in Chapel Town where I live, there's the funeral announcement. They come under, you know, so you get the funeral announcement with the names. In the Caribbean, it's a really interesting name because somebody might know somebody by Boise or Mango, or, and then the name comes on, and there's a long thing where people phone each other and say, did you know his name was Emmanuel? No, I went to school with him from since he was that high, and I didn't know. So the funeral announcement, I always find it fascinating how people think, get to know the name. To hear his name called Dry So on radio was the son of 
brother of, left behind, broke her up, like razor scraping against her skin. And them dotish dogs sprawl off, howling a relentless dirge for their master, who never pelled them with cake, who boil one fresh pot of dog food, chicken neck, with gravy and white rice every morning like greeting. Them dogs howl till grief lock off their windpipe. His resurrection. When Lazarus fasts up and step across the threshold of his own wake, rank with corpse stink, the wake broke up. Who put foot out of door quick time? Who start pray fast fast? Who faint and get revived with smelling sauce? Miss Gibbs, forget her hips were bad till she take two steps and fall down brat up. Mr. Power start to moan about the good, good money. He dash away on pretty funeral frock for Betty, and now she can't even use it. And Uncle Johnny start fling rum, saying, you're dead, man, you're dead. Like libation have any power over the resurrected. And libation in our culture is when you pour rum on the floor for your dead ancestors, so he's flinging the rum at the corpse who's walking in. Um, vexation. It had the makings of a boss funeral, mourners muttered, sulking into wake shadow. Mary, and in the Caribbean, there's this thing we do to show vexation where we go, which is a kiss tea, and it's called a strips. Mary strips over and over like chant, her venomous kiss tea terrifying even tough back crapple, and Martha vexed too bad how we could go and make their serious work of grief into a pappy show, Mary head get hot. Look how much white candle he mother burned to lighty way and how like stubborn jackass, he refused to follow instruction, just turn away from the light bold face. So this was just like when he was hard ears to leave his mother womb. And the old choir women in the back room stopped singing and only cussing bad words while at the shame and slander in this thing. And so at every funeral, there's inevitably a party. Um, and... Um, so this is fling down party. Um, usually you go to the church in the morning, you go to the graveside, and then you go to a kind of sit down feast. And at the end of the feast, there's a kind of party where you celebrate that person. So I thought, what would Lazarus do if he comes out? And I thought he'd have a big party. Lazarus dash away the hymns and cuss words from his house with the heavy bass of a thumping speaker box. The floorboards start to tremble as his foot rise and skip, as his fingers lick and clap when the Rastaman chant take over, give thanks. Lazarus dance fire and brimstone, dance chant down Babylon, start lick his fists on fragile board walls, start shout more fire, more fire, as alive scatter his locks and spring into his step, as if alive shook up his mind, his locks swinging like thick twine and he shouting, I and I liberty, I and I liberty. Um, and then I thought, what would you do if you were a guy and you, you were resurrected, you know, into the nine nights and it's still going on? And I thought you would chat up some woman, wouldn't you? Um, and if you were resurrected, you would have this kind of nonsensical talk of resurrection. So the geography of resurrection. And when the reporter woman asked Lazarus what it was like as they sat in the cream room with the hum of mosquitoes, and he said, there's a chart to being resurrected, an atlas that have mud swamp, sweet water river and thorny parts. There's a one foot in front of another chart. There's a believe and it shall be chart. There's a surrender chart. There's a rhythm chart. And you just have to trot it, Aruga. You just have to trot it. 
the laying of hands. And when they saw he still lived to this ninth day, they canceled a quaff funeral parlor, grabbed him up in a white sheet, towed him swinging like he in a rocking hammock to the shore and rolled him in the hot sand, then donkey head in salty water, washing death stench off of him. Then they anointed, all palms seeking to touch their miracle. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Malika. Um, now, our get next guest today was going to be Tony Walter, um, who sends his apologies that he can't be with us today. Instead, we have the wonderful John Harris stepping in to fill the breach, who studied under Tony at Reading. John is from the funeral directors, T. Cribb and Sons, and he's going to discuss the demise of the East End funeral and how they've adapted to the demographic changes. So, for example, building a funeral home to cater for the many cultures and religions that are now represented in London. Please join me in welcoming John. Good afternoon, all. Right, I'm going to condense really our firm's history of 140 years into just under 15 minutes, so uh, you'll have to jump on board on this one. My great-great-grandfather established our business in the East End of London in 1881, and really for the first 100 years, there's not a lot to tell you. Life hasn't changed much in the East End of London. Um, there were plenty of funeral directors where grandfather was in those period, in just one street, the old Rathbone Street, for those of you who know Canning Town, um, Rathbone Street Market was a bit of a hub. Um, in that one street, there was five undertakers. Um, so competition was fierce. Um, when people were born in the East End of London, um, the one thing you were sure was they were going to die in the East End of London, unless they'd been hopping down in Yalding or somewhere like that, and then we'd have to go down in the sort of autumn time and bring them back. But otherwise, everything was local. Um, as you probably all know, the East End has changed. Um, some 30 years ago, it started to change quite dramatically for us. Um, there's always been um, a sort of an immigrant population. You've got to remember that part of London, you had the Royal Docks. So, you know, we had a sort of Polish community long before it was in vogue to have a Polish community. We had a Vietnamese community, a Chinese, all in small pockets, scattered around. But as a dock, like any other dock, probably in any other part of the world, um, it was fairly diverse. However, 30 years ago, things changed quite dramatically. As I say, Hindu Sikh families started to move into the Forest Gate, East Ham area. Um, a lot more Caribbean families were moving in. Certainly a lot more African families were moving in. It sort of affected us how we sort of obviously had to change our modus operandi. Uh, we had to learn about these cultures, um, but they all used our services. And about, well, it was just on 20 odd years ago, we actually moved from a very traditional high street undertakers, as you would all see today, to a purpose-built funeral home on about an acre of ground in Beckton. Now we did that because to sort of really look after these new families moving into the area. We incorporated Hindu Sikh washrooms because those particular part of the community, they like to walk, bathe their own uh, deceased. So we gave them that facility. We have Filipino families, quite large community there, who like to do all night vigils. So sometimes you can come down to our place like five o'clock on a Friday night and the same family will still be there Monday morning and they'll be there 24 seven. They'll be bringing food in. 
you could turn up at our place at three o'clock in the morning and you could have two, three hundred people there all whining and dining. And, um, and some nights that's quite interesting. I learned to play poker one evening with a Filipino family. Um, although they also like Jack Daniels, so I don't remember much about the poker game. <laughs> but anyway, um, one evening on a, on a particular session when I was doing a, a vigil, I actually woke up and most of the family had left. Um, but anyway, I'm sure they was fine. Um, but then things changed again. Um, if you go back sort of perhaps 15 years ago, um, we went through another real transition which did affect us hugely, which was a, a large Muslim community moving into East London. Um, now, as you may or may not know, that they won't use a funeral director, they'll use the mosque, so we don't get to any dealings at all with the Muslim community. Um, and then also a lot more Eastern European families coming in, especially the Polish. Now, um, if you think probably Newham now is 35% heading towards 40% uh, Muslim, if you look at Tower Hamlets, 40% plus now is Muslim. Um, the Eastern Europeans, how does that affect us? Well, with the Polish community, you'll get a funeral director drive over from Poland, pick up the body, and drive back again. So we don't really get a look in there either. And it's, it's interesting because when folks turn around to me, you know, it's one of those things, as a funeral director, if you're going out socially and they sort of say, well, what do you do for a living? You say, oh, I'm a funeral director. That's it, you're nailed in the corner and that's where you are all night answering all sorts of questions about death and dying. And um, I've got to be really mindful about my time. Quarter of an hour, I could speak for hours. Um, and, and of course, they, the, the one thing they all say, oh, at least in your business, you're always going to be in business. Well, then I sort of start to tell them about the demographics. Now, just to put that into context, going back to what I said earlier about grandfather having five undertakers in one street, if you look at the whole of Newham, now it's a large London borough, we're the last family funeral director left in that area. Um, another funeral director in Tower Hamlets, he's the last, and he's just about to move out. So you've got a couple of co-op shops or a couple of the bigger chains there, but that's all that's representative now of the funeral trade in that whole of that part of East London. You'll have areas like Stoke Newington where the last funeral director there is due to go. Why? Because there's a big Turkish Muslim community, they do everything through, so there's no need for a funeral director anymore. So the idea of having a job for life in our game was, uh, <laughs> is remote. Um, and of course, what happened to the East End? You know, we've built up as a family relationships over generations, you know, and people would come back to you because she was the family name, you was trusted, you know, they knew my father, they probably knew more about my family than I do. Um, and the East End, what did they do? Well, they all jumped on the A13 and they didn't stop till they got their feet wet in South End and they're spread along that path. So in order to survive as a business, we took the view that we had to move with them First generation moving out into Essex would come back to us. Second generation, unlikely, because you're not building up that relationship. So we brought out other failing independent funeral directors going down that path to secure that part of the business. But going back again, I'd built this 20 years ago, we built this monolith of a building thinking that we're going to be set for life. What do we do with it? So we ended up specialising. So we look after the Filipino community, um, the Sikh Hindu community. We then looked at the Chinese community. Um, they have quite special beliefs. So they believe in a two-soul system. Well, there's a three, but if we start on that, we'll be here all night. But anyway, two-soul system, one for this world, one for the next world. And 
for the journey into the next world, we have a facility where we do all the burnings of the tokens because they believe in that spirit going on that it takes a journey through what they call hell, we would perhaps call purgatory. During this period of this journey, they meet demons, they have to be paid off, which is why you get this hell money. So they'd be burning the hell money. And then we built niches at the funeral home there in Beckton where the ashes can remain. They still have to be maintained because they still believe there's a spirit with those as well. So they come in, they bring in, well, they'll bring in beer, bread, you know, there's somebody who always brings in a, 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 a McDonald's fish meal or something, you know, because that's what they used to like in life. So they get it in death as well. So the long and short of it is, that's the way we look to that community. Now, because it is such um, a diverse community as far as the world is concerned, we also concentrated on repatriation. So if I think of our local cemetery, which is East London Cemetery, now we were in and out of there every day years ago. I do more burials in Lagos now than I do in East London Cemetery, to give you some idea. Now, we do a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we've got agents in Uganda, Nigeria, uh, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and gosh, it was about 15 years ago. Uh, we didn't have anywhere out in Ghana, so I actually flew out to try and find some contacts. Um, ended up after two weeks coming back and telling my father that we're just now the proud owners of a plot of ground just outside Accra. Um, and since then, we've built this funeral home, which has gradually expanded. I'm out there next week. Um, it's on something like five acres now. It's probably the biggest funeral home in sub-Saharan Africa, I should think. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, you've gone from this journey of sitting in, you know, the bottom of Canning Town, and now there we are having to, well, it's almost, well, it isn't almost, it is, I was saying to folks earlier, it's commutable. Um, I mean, next Thursday night, I'll be in the office all day in Accra, I'll jump on the plane at 11 o'clock, sleep on the plane, next morning, nine o'clock, I'm back in the office in East London. Um, the world is now a very, very small place. I think we're still going strong. Um, so we've, you know, managed to sort of um, adapt as we've gone along. One of the other areas that sort of come up from this as well is what tends to happen is the first generation of people dying in this country that have come from abroad, um, sometimes they think, well, we're going to make our life here, we've got children here, this is where we're going to spend our life. So they'll have their burial in the local cemetery. But then as time goes on, the person that's left, um, as they get older, they tend to get a call, especially African community, tend to get an internal call that they want to now spend their last days back home. So they're in a bit of a dilemma. They've got their partner buried in this country. They want to be going back home and they'll probably pass away there. So now what we end up doing is doing an exhumation in this country <laughs> and then flying the body back to the family home. And this started in earnest going back something like 30 years ago. You know, with, with Uganda, there was the start of the AIDS epidemic. Lots of Ugandans coming to this country, um, um, believing that there was either a cure or those more enlightened would understand that they perhaps wouldn't have a painful death. 
So we started off some 30 years ago on this repatriation side. I mean, um, and today, I mean, perhaps as I say, we do more burials in places like Lagos than we ever do locally. Um, and that extended that business as well, so much so that we've got a major exhum uh, exhumation business. We're at the moment, we've just finished with Crossrail at the Liverpool Street site, working alongside the Museum of London with the old um, Bethlehem Hospital. And um, we've now just got the contract at Euston with the HS2 link. Now, to give you some idea of scale, uh, I mean, and we've, funny enough, we, our first main exhumation was in a local school here where the development they was going to have a, um, a music centre um, started to dig up the playground and found it was a cemetery underneath it. And we ended up moving the remains of 16,000 people out of there. <laughs> um, now, to put that into context, you know, when you look at the whole HS2, we'll probably be looking at probably 40-odd thousand in Euston, and then we're continuing on up in Birmingham with possibly another 20,000. So, um, to say that we've diversified is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, good work. <laughs> Uh, we're now going to hear from Rachel Clark. Rachel is a current NHS doctor working in palliative medicine, and she's going to be talking to us about um, helping patients who are at the end of their lives to experience the best quality of life possible. Please join me in welcoming Rachel. Hello, everyone. I'm slightly hesitating following that. I'm not sure I'm going to start with quite as many jokes, but there may be one or two. Um, so, as Sophie says, I'm a palliative care doctor, so I've chosen to specialise in the branch of medicine that's probably steeped in more taboo and fear than any other, all of which is, has, is demonstrated so wonderfully and strikingly in the play Exit the King. I work in an NHS hospice, and so rarely, if ever, does a week go by when all of my patients survive, so dying is my day job. And when people find out what I do, they often assume it must be utterly depressing. Um, in fact, there's, there's a surprisingly small amount of existential angst and terror among the patients I work with. And in fact, what I find most remarkable about being a palliative care doctor isn't exactly the proximity to death and dying, it's really the quantity of living, the very best bits of living that goes on in our hospice. Things like love, kindness, courage, tenderness, all of those are the things that come to the fore as someone approaches the end of their life. And so what I'd like to do this afternoon is very briefly try to give a flavor of what it's actually like for somebody to confront the fact that they are imminently dying and what it's like to work, work with patients who are so close to the end of their life. This is something that perhaps we used to have more familiarity with. Uh, the dying process was once a process with which we had familiarity because it tended to take place in the home among our families. But now we inhabit a point in history at which dying, much like giving birth, has become very institutionalized. So it's entirely possible to live your whole lifetime today without ever setting eyes on 
death because essentially dying has been outsourced. It's now the responsibility of paid professionals. And in place of the family home, we have institutions like hospices or hospitals or care homes. Th these places have become the repositories really for modern day dying. I interestingly, when you ask the public how they feel about that, that's not what most people want. The vast majority of people who express a preference say that they would like to die at home with their families. But in Britain, a small proportion, only one in five of us will actually do that, and the rest of us will die in those institutions instead. Um, some people feel as though that's completely a bad thing. I, I don't think that um, simply because, of course, the reason why many of us now die in hospital is because medicine has bec become so skilled that actually we are able to intervene and we are able to arrest the dying process. We're able to reverse conditions like infectious diseases or childbirth complications that used to claim so many people when they were young in the prime of life. And, and of course, that's something to celebrate. But it does come at a cost, and the cost is this lack of familiarity now with what some people describe as normal dying. I, I, I'm not sure I ever like the word normal in a medical context because it raises all sorts of questions about what is abnormal and who decides what abnormal means. But I suppose uh, very often now, if we are present when a friend or a family member die, it may well be in a heavily medicalized environment. So for instance, all the bleeping and drips and paraphernalia of an intensive care unit, for, an exam for example, and that, that might skew our perceptions of what dying is like. As a palliative care doctor, um, my job is primarily not about prolonging life. Sometimes it is, but not usually. It's, but it is always about living and in a sense the essence of palliative care is precisely that it's trying to enable our patients to really live their remaining time as richly and fully as possible and on their own terms not on anybody else's and when I meet patients for the first time very often the thing that they're most afraid of is terrible symptoms they imagine that their final days may be consumed by pain or indignity, nausea, vomiting, and so on. Actually, these days, we're pretty good at managing to successfully control all, all but the most intractable of symptoms. And the vast majority of people I look after in my hospice, they really don't have terrible symptoms. And in a sense, that, that frees up that time to be getting on with living. And you might be surprised by some of what goes on in a hospice. So, for example, in my hospice where I work, we uh, have a big role for our jacuzzi. The patients love the jacuzzi, and the nurses have a stash of extremely expensive, luxurious bath bombs, which are an important part of palliative care locally for us. We recently had a date night um, for one of my patients who had an evening meal with her husband of her favorite Chinese takeaway. Her chemotherapy had affected her sense of taste, and so 
Chinese food was the only food she could still enjoy. They had champagne, they had a white linen tablecloth, they had rose petals, and it was absolutely wonderful. A few days later, she died, but that experience for both of them was absolutely magical. And recently, I admitted a patient, a very elderly gentleman, who was in the last few days of his life, he, he knew this, and I asked him if there was anything he'd really love to experience before the end. He had been a, a, a mad fisherman his whole life, ever since he was a little boy. He just loved angling. That's all he'd done in his spare time. And he said, if you can get me to a riverbank for half an hour, not to fish, just to look at it, just to look at the river and the ducks, you'd make me feel like royalty. So I like a challenge, and I said, okay, we're going to do that. And we had Operation Water Vole, as we called it, and we organized a wheelchair taxi, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and we got him to his riverbank for half an hour, and it was wonderful, a wonderful experience. Um, so, so there's a, a lot of living that goes on in a hospice. When our patients die and all of the paraphernalia of life-saving and attempting to keep a patient alive has been removed from the equation, it's often a far more slow and gradual and sometimes almost gentle experience than people might imagine. So, for example, if you... Um, if I think of patients who die from cancer, which is the majority of our patients because one in two of us will end up developing cancer in our lifetime, that pr the, the dying process will start with a patient typically simply becoming more tired, more fatigued, sleeping more, having naps in the afternoon, finding they just don't have the same physical strength that they used to. It, it's gradual, it can be immensely frustrating, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily involve horrific pain or indeed any pain at all. And gradually that sleepiness becomes more pronounced. A, a patient may sleep more time than they're actually awake. And at some stage, as they continue to deteriorate, they will gradually slip from sleepiness and spending a lot of time asleep into unconsciousness and that's a transition they will never be aware of themselves. And then, and this might be a process that takes hours or it might take a few days, their conscious level will gradually become more and more reduced and at some stage, the brainstem will be affected and the brainstem controls your breathing. So um, because it has ceased to function properly, the breathing may become very erratic and there'll be long, long pauses between breaths, which can be very traumatic for a family or, or friends at the bedside. But again, it's something that a patient isn't aware of because they're so deeply unconscious. And these long pauses in between breaths, at some stage, one of those pauses will simply cease to be a pause and will, you realize, as the seconds go by, have become the final breath. And it can be so subtle and so gentle that you're almost unaware of the fact that the patient has died until after the event. And it really isn't a horrible or ghastly or distressing process. There's no doubt that the grief that accompanies dying, of course, is often all of those things. It can be cataclysmically painful for that patient's family, for example. But, but in a way, I think of that as being... Um, it, it's a consequence of the fact 
that that person is loved. Grief essentially is the form that love takes when somebody dies. It's awful, we can't palliate it, all we can do is be there at the end with that family, but it's a product of love at the bedside. I'd like to share with you just one other type of transition that we sometimes see in the hospice, and this is one of a more psychological nature, um, and it concerns the way in which sometimes a person's proximity to death can really transform their attitude to living. So some of you may remember many years ago, the playwright Dennis Potter gave an extraordinary televised interview with Melvin Bragg. He had been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and he knew he was in the last weeks of his life. This was his final public broadcast and he sat on stage drinking white wine, smoking cigarettes throughout the interview and swigging morphine from a silver hip flask that he had on the table next to him. And he talked about the way in which the knowledge that his time was so limited gave him freedom and license to really live in the present, much like children do today, and we could probably all wish to bottle a bit of that. And I'll just read you a quote from that interview. So he said, the only thing you know for sure is the present tense, and that nowness becomes so vivid that almost in a perverse way I'm serene, I can celebrate life, Last week, looking at the blossom through the window when I'm writing, I see it as the whitest, frothiest, blossomiest blossom there ever could be, and I can really see it. Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were, and the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter, but the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. And we see that nowness very, very often at work, which is why, for me, palliative care is not depressing at all. It is actually, for me, the most uplifting form of medicine I could practice. It's a privilege to do this job because you see patients confronting a set of circumstances they can't do anything about with such dignity and courage and grace over and over again. It's remarkable what it shows you about human beings. I'll finish just with a few more words, and these are from one of my patients, a woman called Diane Finch, whom I interviewed uh, a couple of months ago as she confronted the fact that she was going to die imminently. So she had metastatic breast cancer. She died when she was 52 years old. She was a mother, she had young children. And she, in contrast to Exit the King and all of the existential trauma and horror that's depicted in the play, she actually demonstrated a very different approach to dying that I think is, um, in my experience, certainly more common. We, we don't see very much existential horror in, in a hospice. Actually, what we tend to see is patients who have been dealt a very, very bad set of cards and who are getting on with living with their dying because they really can't do anything else. Uh, the novelist Haruki Murakami once, I think, very beautifully encapsulated this when he wrote, dying is not the opposite of living, it is a part of it. And that's true. Dying is the most natural thing that any of us will ever do. It's the one thing we know with absolute certainty we are going to do, it is a part of our life. And this is what Diane said to me a few weeks before she died, when you might imagine she would be tortured by what was coming. She said, 
There's so much talk of being in the moment, making sure you don't stress out over tiny things that don't matter. And yes, terminal illness is undeniably a life lesson. There's nothing like a diagnosis of secondary breast cancer to pull you up short when you're stressing about having too many dishes to do. You cope by getting on with it. You haven't got any option. It's not a fight, it's a test of endurance. There's great comfort for me in nature that I can step out of my little room and feel there's a bigger picture. It's not just me and my cancer. There's a whole big world out there full of all manner of wonderful things that will continue on despite the fact that I've shuffled off my mortal coil. Sure, I can stand next to a tree and say, why did this happen to me? And the tree's not going to answer me, but it will still stand there being beautiful and tree-like, and somehow that's useful to just be. I've always been a big fan of autumn, which feels to me like the winding down season, and that's what my life is doing now, winding down. There's a cycle in my life too, and it will be natural for me to pass on. Why does this bring me solace? I think because cancer and death, they are a part of nature. We can't control them, we just have to accept them and do our best to take part with grace and to rejoice in the good things that we've got. I look towards the love I feel for my family because at the end of the day, that's what carries us through, our connections with other people and love. And I think I will end there. I can't really add anything to those words, but for me, there is something absolutely uplifting and beautiful about Diane Finch's words there. So thank you very much. Um, I'd just like to let you know really quickly that there are signed copies of Rachel's book available in the bookshop downstairs, uh, Your Life in My Hands. And thank you very much for coming along today. <laughs>